Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello there and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. This is part two of our NEAT series with Chris Porter, the man behind Jumptron Bikes and Mojo Rising. He's been working for a long time in suspension and bicycle design. If you've not listened to part one, I'd urge you to go and do that first because part two will make a lot more sense if you know what's going on. Please also be aware that this podcast does include some strong language, so if you do find that offensive, you might not want to listen. Do you think the bikes are at a point now where they're big enough for some riders and not for others? Because I think the bikes are, they're still... um, quite poorly designed for people at the extremes of of height yeah like i i agree with you um we have very similar sized bikes over the last four or five years um in our little company we went right outside the norm the norm is coming to meet us um our size range was called long, longer, longest, extra longest, because our small, if you like, Mm -hmm. the one we called long, um, was actually longer in wheelbase than the XL Foxy of the time, which was the longest trail bike available. Um, So it seemed ridiculous to call it a small. Mm -hmm. Um, So our naming uh, standards, we would call long, longer, longest extra longest and we haven't changed an awful lot over the last four or five years since then but we have people at five foot six buying larges and we have people at six foot one buying larges and we have we have people buying the bikes we would expect them to buy, five foot six, five foot seven on a medium, five foot eight, five foot ten on a large, six foot on an extra large, mm. six foot one on an extra large. And then we have outliers where, you know, maybe you've got a guy that rides only steep, scratchy, scandy style turns. He's going to want a shorter swing arm and a shorter bike. Um, he's on his flats and he's smashing turns down hills. Um, he's going to want a smaller bike. That's not going to... That that will only help enhance his riding experience. Um, but for somebody that wants to ride fast, flat-out, wide-open turns on clips at exactly the same height and shape, body shape, he's going to want to be on the next size up with a longer swing arm. You know, it's... Mm. the. There are more that it's not our bikes big enough because I think we're starting to get to a position where bikes get bigger. It's are they capable of doing the job for lots of different people? So we go back to, you know, our bikes big enough. They have been for a few years now. But we've been sizing up, haven't we? A lot of people have been sizing up. Yeah, if you can do, yeah. which if you're already running an XL, you can't. Yeah, uh, for for us, yes, at the extremes, we're we're not lucky enough to be able to do that. But then, the people that were doing that now run into problems with the seat height. Yeah, yeah. especially on designs where 
the suspension dictates that um, the seat height is already quite high. As a minimum. Yeah. So that when 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 they add 20 mil to every seat tube height for every size, because that is what we've done forever, um, then you end up with a situation where people are sizing up and then thinking, oh, I wish I could hacksaw off this seat tube so I could get my dropper post to fit properly. Mm. <laughs> um, so, yes, bikes are getting bigger. Yes, things... But, you know, we bikes are not finished yet. There'll always be more to do. Yeah, yeah. So so the reason... So we're talking about wheelbase and height and how they relate. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned Greg Menard as well uh, and, and how his bike might not be long enough for him still. Um, might not. Yeah. Well, yeah. don't be offended. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, so I was looking at there's a bike check of Joe Barnes on his yeah. on his orange Alpine. Yeah. And he said he was kind of swithering between the medium and the large. Yeah. And he's 170, 170 centimeters tall. So yeah. so I was like, hmm, that's interesting. So I looked it's at the very small. I looked yeah. at the medium. Yeah. And it's got like a 1250 wheelbase now. Yeah. And I was like, okay, that's pretty much what an XL was until recently. So it's interesting yeah. that he's not sure if that's too small for him. Yeah. Um, so, so I looked at that and I worked out I'm about 11 or 12% taller than Joe Barnes. Yeah. And if I had a bike that was 12% longer than his medium, which yeah. is the smaller of his two options, yeah. it'd be like 1400 mil or something wheel-based. It's like- That's our XXL. That's your XXL, yeah. yeah. And it's like- Yeah. I was like, okay, so it's just not, it's just not drawn to scale. No. Like bikes are not drawn to scale. So I know you could have someone else at the opposite end of this extreme who's on, who's maybe five foot tall. Mm -hmm. Sorry to mix metric and imperial because people hate that. But <laughs> if you're, if we're British and we like to confuse Before, ourselves. We were born into it, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if you're on an extra small, like I wonder if you can get a bike that's small enough if you're really, if you're really short, particularly if you want a, if you want a 29er Enduro bike, and you're, even if you want any Enduro bike, like, yeah. are you going to be able to find a bike that's, if you're 10% shorter, will you find a bike that's 10% shorter wheelbase? Probably not. Like, well, well, okay, so then that brings you back to more sort of esoteric design questions because, you know, let's say, let's look at that, let's look at the, um, the bike we were just talking about, Joe Barnes Alpine. If we make that shorter, we've changed the angle of the down tube and the relationship between the suspension um, shock unit and the swing arm. So we've changed the leverage. Yeah. So, so the person on the extra extra small might not be getting the, the benefit of the linkage kinematics on certain designs that the person on the medium and large where the design was drawn is. Yeah, and there are other things going on as well, like those bikes will have probably the same wheels, same wheel size. So, yeah, yeah. and that kind of limits how, what you can do with the rear center length. Yeah. They'll, they'll realistically, most, most bike companies, they'll have the same swing arm. Yeah. So the rear center will be the same anyway. Most of them, yeah. The, yeah. the cranks, you can get a small variation in crank length, but cranks are much the same. Like yeah. they're not varying by 10, 20% in length. No. And that means that the bottom bracket height is the same. Yeah. And the forks are the same. The axis crown is the same. So like, Trying to make it proportional is kind of, in order to do that so that it was perfectly, you know, scaled up for different heights of riders, yeah. 
everything would need to change. And at the moment, it's just basically the reach that's changing. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Everything needs to change um, to do a really good job. But because we're at a position where most of the mountain bike is not built to that performance criteria that you're describing, um, you're just massaging, you're, you're making compromises already, aren't you? Because there's not much on the mountain bike that is built with that level of performance that you just described, you know, tailoring everything size-wise. I mean, crying out loud, we've still got the derailleur hanging off the rear wheel. The anti-squat changes, the relationship between the top of the front and rear chain ring and the suspension pivot changes every time you change gear. Um, there's so many things on the mountain bike that need changing before we get to that. Um, there are bigger... Is low, lower hanging fruit? Oh, yes. You know, we've, we've got bigger performance gains to get rather than just trying to tailor size to suit rider. Yeah, yeah. I think the other, the other thought I had about that was that do we necessarily want bikes that are perfectly proportional because we're riding the same tracks with the mm. same corners? Yeah. So if you're 10% taller than Joe Barnes, do you necessarily want 10% more wheelbase when you're trying to get around the same corners? Um, I, I, don't, I don't think that matters that much. I know that as I got to bigger and bigger bikes and more and more comfortable riding position, I was riding tighter tracks more comfortably. Um, and you'll remember the old Mojo track that was opposite, that was built by the two smallest guys at Mojo, yeah. and they yeah. tried to screw us up by building the tightest track in the world. Yeah, I think, I think I've seen it said that your bikes are just designed to go down straight, like fire roads or something, and it's yeah. like, no, they're, they're pretty much, uh, <laughs> as far as I can tell, they're kind of tested on some of the tightest tracks you'll find. Yeah, and, and I actually enjoy riding the tighter tracks because they do force you to find some flow where flow is hard to find and you get the reward from finding that more where it's difficult mm. you know flows easy to find when you're out you know riding a, a bike park whales blue or red and and the sun is shining and the wind is on your mm. back and you know it's easy to find that flow but to try and find that flow when you're riding a really tight, slippy, snotty or gravelly trail where it's really difficult to actually, and you have to use so much body English to get between the trees, that's a much more rewarding thing to find speed and flow there. And I'm going faster on my bigger bikes in those situations than I've ever been before. Mm. So, you know, this is something we were saying before we even started this back in the workshop, you know, at, at 54 years old, if I could go back and race what I've got now against the imaginary me in the 90s, I would be a lot quicker. Riding has come on, bikes have come on, tracks have got harder, we're generally pushing ourselves harder you can't you know you can't 
you can't go back. But I'm looking forward to the next 10 years and hopefully as a rider of 64, I'll still be, you know, pushing the limits in certain places. There are still places now where I can ride a bike and go, come on, you piece of shit, go faster. Um, and if I can feel that at my age with my sort of diminishing sense of risk versus reward, then someone in their 20s must be pushing these bikes mm. and thinking, come on, this should be able to go faster here. Come on, come on, come on. I think I think the thing with you is you think about the bike and the rider, whereas most people, if they get something wrong, they blame themselves. Oh, and sure. you can fix any problem by riding differently. Yeah, but but I think you're the reason that you feel that so acutely is because you kind of your your approach is more bike centric than most people. Well, that's because you know I've spent a lifetime learning how to ride the way I ride. I don't want to be told by someone that I need to get into this yoga position to make this bicycle go around the corner. It's not, you know, that doesn't suit me. And uh, I can't learn how to ride again. I wish I could go, you know, I wish I could learn how to ride like, you know, Josh Bryceland now, but it's not possible. I, it's not going to happen. I, I haven't got that capability to learn how to ride again. So I have to change the bike. And that's what we've noticed by spending more time face-to-face -face with the customers is that when you find that little thing that makes the customer happy on the bike, they naturally ride it well. Um, you can see customers uncomfortable with the bike and you're trying to find, oh, what is it that is causing that? What is it? And then you'll find the key, you know, handlebar position, handlebar height, um, bottom bracket, suspension setting, front versus rear, you know, wheel size, whatever it might be, you know, you'll find the key and then all of a sudden the rider remembers how to ride. <laughs> it's, it's always there, um, but you're fighting the bike a lot of the time. And good riders can do what you were saying just then. You ride around it. Mm. I mean, Josh Bryceland, let's go back to that name. Um, the first Bronson launch video. Josh on a medium Bronson. Come on. Six foot four or whatever he is. Medium Bronson. Most amazing video. Such inspiring riding. Um, amazing. But we no, people would... People of five foot four now would think the medium Bronson is too small, you know, and yet there's Josh at six foot four or five or whatever, mm. riding it. Making it work. Oh, amazing. But not possible for normal people to do that. <laughs> <laughs> not yeah. possible. So uh, we should probably think about time a little bit, um, get towards the end. Uh, what do you think will be the what do you think is the low-hanging fruit and what do you think will be the main improvements um with bikes going forward but i mean the next step the way the bike's built is built of all separate components that come together and and the innovation comes usually from one component or another but it's limited to that narrow range of circumstances that that component can affect now we need to see the whole thing change. The rear derailleur has to come off the rear wheel. To do that, everything has to change. Um, 
we need to take that 700, 800 grams off the rear wheel and put it into the sprung mass of the chassis. We need to reduce the stiction in the fork. We need to reduce the flex in the handlebar and the fork a little bit at least. Um, there are so many things to do, but we can't do them with the components we've got. Everything has to be redesigned almost. Um, you know, as, a, as an illustration of that, all bicycle forks look the same. Uh, they've all got cast magnesium lowers and fixed, um, fixed bushings. That's a real limit to performance. But because everyone's invested in that technology, it's going to take a real step outside of that. By fixed bushings, do you mean bushings are fixed into the lower so that they are the same distance apart, no matter where you are in the travel. Exactly. Whereas that. some some motorbike forks, as I understand it, have the lower bushing slides with the upper tube. All motorcycle all. forks. Okay, yeah. Even if you go back to the 1970s, all motorcycle forks have a sliding bushing and a fixed bushing. Um, and the advantage of that is that the bushing overlap increases as you go into the travel so you have less binding load for, yes, on that's, them. that's part of it but if you look at if you look at where the leverage on the bushing comes from it comes from the contact patch of the front wheel so the leverage on that bushing is you think of lever distance it's from the contact patch to the lower bushing mm -hmm. now if the lower bushing moves as you go through the travel that leverage reduces so you're actually putting less leverage on that lower bushing and you have more overlap. And the bushing is moving in the oil and moving the oil around. And there are so many ways that would be good, but we can't do it with the design criteria we've got of bicycles at the moment, which is the cast magnesium lower. It's not possible. We could do a lot better job with it. Um, uh, but we can't change that because we can't slide a bushing in cast magnesium. And the other limiting factor to bicycles. Would you so would you need to go to an inverted fork design to make that work, or could you do it with a uh, a regular sort of fork? You, you can do it with a regular fork because you mm. can put the bushing on the end of the upper stanchion, facing outwards, and slide it down through the lower. But you can't on a magnesium surface. Um, but the uh, oh, I forgot what I was going to say next. Uh, early onset dementia. Um, <laughs> we were uh, talking about sliding bushes and leverage and the... The design the, of the fork? So, yes, the, the other limiting factor with everything on a bicycle is that the only performance criteria we've got is the weighing scales, which is why we've ended up with cast magnesium lowers and why... Um, because it's the lightest way of doing things and why we've limited the performance of our forks. You can make those forks work really well if you weigh 60 kilos, but you and I don't weigh 60 kilos. Mm -hmm. So the point in the travel where, let's say, Joe Barnes is starting to feel bushing binding, um, he might be at 80% travel. You and I at let's say 50% more weight than Joe, but we're hitting obstacles with the same force, which is exponential, 
So our, we're feeling that bushing binding at probably half of what Joe is. So as we go into the travel, we're starting to feel bushing binding just after the sag point. The same amount of stiction that he's feeling at almost full travel. Um, so again, bigger guys maybe need heavier components. Well, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. because I mean, a smaller than an XL will weigh almost the same. Maybe mm. five hundred thousand grams different tops. Yeah, there's not enough material in there, is there, for the heavier guy? Yeah, or there's, you know, you could maybe argue they're overkill for the lightest riders, which I think is true in a certain to for some. There's nothing that lasts in mountain biking. Nothing. There's no component that is bulletproof. But in terms of, um, we were talking earlier about linkage forks and yeah. how perhaps the flex, the rearward flex, when you hit a bump in a telescopic fork can help to kind of prolong, to kind of allow the fork a bit of time to start moving into its travel. Whereas if you weigh 50 kilos, maybe the fork is too stiff for you in some cases. Uh, well, um, I'd argue that if you're using flex as suspension, mm. you can do it and it may help, but there's a better way of doing it. And this is this will be one of the situations. Yeah, this is this is the state of play at the moment that I'm yeah. talking about. I'm not talking yeah. about the ideal. Yeah, no, that then the state of play at the moment is exactly that. You know, we're using we we're using all of the failings of the bicycle and riding around them to to find positives. Um the the fork will very rarely be too stiff for someone who's 60 kilos, but it'll certainly not be stiff enough for someone that's 100. Mm. Um, and, and riding hard. Um, very rarely. But, but again, at 60 kilos, you know, I can't imagine that Joe will go through the year and finish the year on all the same components that he started the year they'll be broken things in joe's mm. garage and he's only 60 kilos um if it's not strong enough for joe barnes at 60 kilos and again you know we've we've through the racing environment we've we've flattered this when enduro racing started there were no mechanics you had to carry a backpack with all your spares and tools and riders were helping each other um, because there was no outside interference. Now in Enduro, they've got mechanics and workshop and tents and and they meet them after every stage and there's a flipping ski lift for some climbs. And, you know, it's so you can afford to use lighter equipment if you know you're going to meet your mechanic in a few hours or even in a few minutes' time. Yeah, because if you have a mechanical, worst thing will happen. Will you'll just co coast it, coax it to the end of the stage and then get it fixed. Whereas, yeah. yeah, that wasn't the case. And in the original enduro, no. And and it'd be great to see that come back. The original idea of enduro, because we did see improvement in longevity of parts. Mm. You know, we and, and enduro bikes have got heavier to the point where an enduro bike wears weighs. More than, more than a downhill bike nowadays. Yeah. Uh, a downhill bike isn't strong enough then, is it? Um, if a, an enduro bike isn't strong enough, downhill bike certainly isn't strong enough. I mean, obviously, you've got certain things on an enduro bike that you don't have with a downhill bike, 
um, like a 500, 600 gram dropper post and an extra cable weight. But at the same time, um, there are bigger, heavier components on the downhill bike, so it mm. should it should be heavier and stronger. Um, but the, we're in a situation where downhill bikes are coming out weighing less than trail bikes, and yet trail bikes still aren't strong enough. Mm. You've uh, so those who don't know, you've uh, you know you you sometimes put lead on your bike. Do you still have lead on your bike, personal bike? Uh, I don't at the moment um, because it's a dead end in terms of testing. It's great to it's great to prove theories to to try these things, but try selling you know try selling a kilo of lead to someone to solve the vibration problem at the handlebars. It's not going to work. Uh, I mean, you can somebody that is having those problems could solve it by putting a kilo of lead on the stem or you know around the headstock area and that would solve the problem or weighting the bar ends but the problem comes from the fact the forks are binding and sticking mm. and and you're not transferring enough weight from the rear shock because there's probably not enough damping at the correct speed ranges to make the front fork comfortable so if i just take the easy route and add the lead Mm. I'm not finding solutions. It's kind of a sticking plaster. Yeah, and so I need, I need to be, you know, I, I need to be realistic about it as well. It's an interesting experiment, but you know, it's not something that I can do for customers. But that's that kilo of lead. Let's imagine we've taken what was on the rear wheel, in the terms of the derailleur, and we've put it in the frame. So that extra kilo of weight that was the derailleur and the mech and the extra bit cable and the free hub and all of these things that weigh um, weigh extra and don't need to be there, if we could put them in the frame, that would be like adding the kilogram. Mm. And it would make the fork feel a kilogram better straight away. It would make the rear shock feel a kilogram better. Um, but and there's a snowball of good consequences, but that's it's not you know it's not possible to do. Mm. No, it's well the Shimano have filed a patent for a a kind of derailleur based gearbox uh, with a with a kind of high high idler pulley to drive the rear wheel, which it could be interesting. Could be a real step forward, I think. You. I'm looking at that in absolutely two ways at the same time. I'm so excited about the patent because it looks amazing and it would solve a lot of problems with the bicycle. And secondly, I'm looking at it saying that has killed off any possible gearbox development because Shimano have filed his patent and they don't possibly intend ever to do it, but they've just killed off any idea that anyone else is going to invest in it just by filing the patent that's going to work. So I'm looking at it a totally opposite direction mm. at the same time. I think it's an amazing thing, but I wonder if in my lifetime I'll ever see it. Um, and I'm not sure how to answer that. The innovation will always come from the small companies, not the big ones. Well, speaking of which, uh, last thing I wanted to ask you about was what you guys are up to now at Mojo Rising. 
So mm-hmm. do you want to run through like what, what your what your projects are? Because there's come some quite interesting stuff that you're doing in the workshop. There's loads of interesting stuff going on. What we're doing at the moment, we're just trying to keep our feet dry. It's just been so wet for the last three or four months. It's sucking, sucking bike stoke every day. But um, no, we are uh, we are working on quite a few new things. Uh, we've been asked to be involved and been quite heavily involved um, with EXT as they develop their new fork. Um, and that's been really exciting and, you know, can't wait to see what they they bring to the market, given that our focus is on um, removing stiction as much as possible over a greater load range as possible. We might end up with something that actually does solve the problem for the bigger guys that the smaller guys don't notice um you know because now that is an issue you know the as a hundred kilo guy if you go to your fork manufacturer and say it's binding they'll say well nico isn't having any problems no no he's 60 kilos and he rides like a flipping he's a god you know (laughs) (laughs) But I'm having the problems, and I paid in grand for this fork, so <laughs> help me. But yeah, you know, it's really exciting to see what they bring. But we've also got, you know, we've we've got, finally got the Mork project to market, and that was really exciting to see a lot of World Cup riders riding the the adjustable crowns uh, on the World Cup circuit. And so that's like an adjustable offset crown for the Fox 40, right? Yeah, that's it. And and we only did that as an afterthought for the 36 project, but the 36 project has been a bigger fish to fry. So the 40 actually came to market before the 36 one did. Um, 36 one is almost there. Um, but the 40, it was really exciting to get some of the emails from some of the riders who bought them all bought them at full price because they all needed to cover over the logos. Um, but uh, interest in hearing their, their description of how the bike was changed just by reducing the offset. Um, and it makes you wonder how these big companies can make these big mistakes and keep on making them. And Do you I, think that that, that shorter offset modification is something that benefits world cup riders more than the average hunter or is it or is it is it that fox has designed the fork to cater for everyone but your your modification makes it more appropriate for world cup riders or it's definitely not more appropriate for world cup riders because as we discussed already in this kind of discussion good riders can ride rain problems (laughs) um if the problem is so great that the good riders can't ride around them, how on earth are the punters going to be enjoying 58 mil offset on their forts or whatever it is? You know, how are, how are the punters going to be enjoying that? I'll tell you, they'll stop riding. It'll drive them, or they'll buy, you know, they'll buy the option with the shorter offset because they've ridden their mate's bike and found that it handled well. They won't know why. Um, but yeah, it's definitely not a World Cup only thing. You you have to make it 
the bike handle for the lowest common denominator because the top guys can pretty much make everything go quick. But um, yeah, it was. Uh, that's been really cool to see that um, on people's bikes at World Cup level. Um, that's that's been pretty cool. Do you know are most of them? Because there's two. The Mork has a slightly shorter offset than the standard, and it has a uh, a shorter still. Do you know which? Are most of the riders using the shortest or the... All of them are using the shortest offset setting, all of them, which makes me wonder whether, uh, you know, at the speeds those guys are going at, they could benefit from even more. Yeah. Um, certainly we've experimented by cutting braces on 27.5 lowers to get 29 wheels in, which gives us an even shorter offset again. Um, maybe at the shortest position maybe that's now getting too short because it self-centers too much under braking mm. and sometimes you need to be actually steering whilst you're decelerating so what what would that be with the shortest setting on the on the 650b fork that would end up um i think it would end up at 44 i think okay so like a trail fork yeah but with less flex oh yeah and if you remember when we first started doing the offset experimentation years ago, mm. we realized that the shorter offset in many ways accommodates the flex of a single crane fork. It's masking the flex. Mm. Um, so, But I think the, the main thing I noticed was that although it made the steering calmer, it made the bike, the wheelbase shorter. Yeah. And that was like a trade-off that I wasn't really sure about at the time. But so, so when you when you when Greg Minar is is using the Mork mm. and shortening the the offset, he's also shortening his wheelbase. So so maybe so you know you have two different variables going on because you can't always, you know, keep the wheelbase the same but shorten the offset. That that would be a lot more complicated to do. Yeah, practically. But when you think back to the bike you were doing that on, yeah, it was a very short bike. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, I mean, we tested from... This was the original specialised Enduro 29, yeah. so... And uh, we were testing from, what, 51 offset to 44, down to 37, and even 30 mil. So the range was... A we just did down to 37. We didn't right. do the 30. Okay, so so we tested over probably a 15 millimetre range, but, yeah. but your wheelbase was already at its limit. Um, so by reducing it by 15 millimeters, you've really screwed up the length of the bike on the steep stuff. Um, whereas Greg is not, you know, hopefully not at that limit now. He's on a decent length bike um, where the contact patch is decently far ahead enough, far ahead in front of him. The difference with reducing the offset is that Instead of the steering coming from that upright flop, the riders seem to be able to get it to lean over onto the side of the tire again. Um, so he's feeling a lot more comfortable about the contact patch because of the angle that it's at. Um, and he, that team, to be fair, were the only team that bought the middle position uh, setting inserts that we supply as well and tested them all back to back with the stock as well. So they tested all four offset positions on the same day um, and they came to that conclusion. So 
they came to the conclusion that the shortest one the was the one they preferred. Yeah. Mm. I always, I always feel like, marks, but, yeah, you know, the question marks about rider position mostly, but because um, obviously, as you adjust the offset and you change in that um, insert in the crown, it means that your your stem length has effectively changed ever so slightly. So they were trying to do the maths in yeah. their head to try and make sure they compensated because that was one of the things that Greg noticed straight away. The rider position seemed to have changed. Um, and and this is something that, you know, a couple of years ago, they did a really quite interesting video piece, Jason Marsh and Greg, about, you know, the change in the handlebar, height, roll and position to suit the track. Um, it's just another adjustment. If you think uh, me as a suspension engineer would probably change that weight balance with damping mm. or springing, but Greg and Jason have a different kind of language that they they use, and they do it with the handlebar. Yeah. So they're changing that weight distribution to suit the track. So Greg really noticed that two and a half mil step change <laughs> in the handlebar because he's really attuned to that because they've been using it as a tuning method for see, years. Yeah. So, but yes, it, it may be that um, it may be that we could go shorter on offset. Um, it may be that riders might start trying looking at some of the. Looking at some of the testing shots, it seems like Fox might have done a shorter offset lower. Um, so it might be that teams will start trying shorter combinations again, uh, using the offset crowns with the shorter offset lower. That'd be quite interesting to see mm. where they end up. Because my gut feeling is that a really short offset will suit a track with really fast obstacles and less braking turns yeah because when you when you get really short offset you notice that particularly under braking it just it self centers too much like um yeah exactly so when you're in a car and you're steering round a roundabout you let go of the steering it's wheel the the steering geometry of a car is designed to self-center but without too much force yeah with with a really short offset fork you notice that especially when you're braking it just doesn't want to go away from straight ahead yeah. So I noticed that. So I've been testing the Trust Shout linkage fork, and yeah. that has in the middle of the travel, it's got 25 mil offset. Yeah. And when you're when you're breaking into a turn, you're you're in the middle of the travel, so you have that really short offset, and it just doesn't want to tip into the corner, and what because it wants to self center so much. And what would be the the way you'd get round that normally um, is that you'd push the bike down. You'd get you'd have to commit let the brakes off a little to get it to initiate the turn and then you can push it down onto the side and once you've got the the bike on its side it might self-center but it self-centers to that shape that 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 wheel pointed off to one side so if you can do that with something like the truss shape where the there's so much you know how do i describe it without being rude there's so much side to side flex between that wheel Mm. and the fork if you're pushing it onto the side to do that then you'll be there'll be so much correction as you're going into the turn and that's why you end up coming in straight because because you can't push it like this i don't think 
I, I think it's more to do just that that variable offset. And uh, so you can kind of, you experience both extremes. Yeah. Because it starts at 55 at the very start of the travel. Yeah. goes down to about 25 by the middle. Yeah. So you have a quite an extreme change in offset mm-hmm. as, you, as, you, as you pull the brakes and the front compresses a little bit and you load the front wheel, you, you have that shorter offset and it, it doesn't steer and, in the way you expect. And in theory, changing the offset through the travel should be good. You know, you should, you should get, you know, the theory is that you get the best of both worlds. But the truth is that changing things under the rider, you know, if you imagine the head angle changes as you brake, that wouldn't work. Um, or, you know, the, the steering is a more progressive thing. You have to steer the handlebar even further, but the wheel doesn't move quite as much. You know, if, if things changed, if things changed under their own steam, you wouldn't be able to keep up with what's going on the bike. I'm not, I'm not convinced of changing the offset as it goes through the travel. I'm really excited by the idea of a linkage fork that works, but having ridden funny front end motorcycles for the last 30 or 40 years, I'm still on a telescopic fork. Um, The theory is still long behind, way behind the reality. Um, There are theoretical benefits, but they're only theoretical, not seen any yet. Um, so, so you've ridden some motorcycle linkage forks. Oh yeah, loads and some. some oh, of course, the BMW yeah, tele lever is it? You've got the tele lever. They had a, they've had a few different versions of that. They're kind of a combination between a, a telescopic fork and uh, and a, um, a parallelogram front end. Now the way they work, um, but there was a. a a Yamaha was probably one of the best road bikes. It was a, what's it called, GTR 1000. They had a sort of a hub center steered bike where you essentially had a swing arm pointing forward from the front of the engine casing. And then a, a complicated um, set of um, linkages that attached to the handlebar that allowed you to steer the wheel on the hub within so the so the swing arm was like fixed and then the hub could steer yeah within that swing arm yeah which on a on a road motorcycle where you don't need a huge amount of steering lock is not a problem um and it actually handled quite well i didn't like the way it worked on the brakes but i liked the way it accelerated and the way it did mid corner um it worked really well and and that's a that's an interesting one because then you go back to that BMW. Let's talk about the GS BMW because that's the one that you see more of, and it's got a really, you know, anti-dive front end. It goes all right downhill. You know, it's a really good motorcycle going downhill. If and I if I try and follow on through the twisties downhill, I'll be pushing the limits of my skill, riding behind a really average rider. And then we turn around and come back up and I'll put minutes into him. Because uphill, it doesn't do the same weight shift as mine is doing onto the bigger rear tire. You know? And mm. so there, 
and we so we go back to that thing we said earlier on about you change something and you might find a positive <laughs> yeah but don't get to i mean I've, I've ridden descents with my lockout on and in some cases it's, it's, it's brilliant yeah but in other cases it's awful yeah. it's like there, there are pros and cons of doing anything yeah absolutely and certain you know certain days you'll you'll ride you'll ride a track accidentally with the lockout on and you know, maybe that lockout is just doing exactly the same thing as the stitching on your tired bushes and seals on your fork. So it's just giving you that absolute balance that you need to feel the bike. You might be feeling more of the bike, but you're feeling it in balance and it's not affecting the steering as the rear wallows mm. more than the front. So you'll kind of feel more dynamic. I certainly know I did that and the 2014 Trans-Provence, I didn't take enough fork spares. And the last two days I did with Pro Pedal full on um, because it was the only way I could make the rear shock match the stiction of the front fork. <laughs> and it's the only way I could make it ride, otherwise I was just all over the place. Um, preferably, I would have sorted the stiction and had everything soft and dynamic, mm. like your Ransom. Uh, but yeah, the you can accidentally make improvements with stuff. So that GS is great bike going downhill on the road, but everywhere else, I wouldn't want to own it. It doesn't have the sort of engaging ride that you expect from an off-road motorcycle. Mm. Um, although if I spent my whole time guiding people down mountain passes, I'd be on one for sure. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but the there, I think there's there's a downside to that as well, even on the descent, because when you have, I think with with linkage forks which have this anti dive, so they use the yeah. brake torque to kind of jack themselves up mm. when you're braking, so that they don't dive as much, and that definitely has advantages. But I think it, you know it has disadvantages as well because you have less load on the front tire. Yeah, you're you're, you're less into the suspension, and so. Yeah, maybe on a motorbike where you have lots of grip, so you you can brake really heavily, mm. you don't want it to dive too much. But on a mountain bike, you have way less grip, so you're never going to be braking quite as as hard. And so maybe you want it to dive a bit more. And so what? So e even there, there's there's uh, pros and cons, I think. Yeah, but but I don't think we can talk about the dive on a front fork on a bicycle to that level at the moment, because there's so much stiction for anyone over 80 kilograms that the dive is not behaving in a predictable manner anyway. You'll end up, um, there's so much support from the stiction in the system, the bushes, the seals, the cartridge seals, the air piston, uh, the bushing in the air piston, the seal in the uh, seal block of the air piston. There's so much stiction from the system that you end up with a situation where you're getting so much support from that stiction, you load it, and when it gives, it gives in a really big, big way. So it, so you end up going further into the travel than you need to go. Um, so if you could make it stiction-free and progressive, you could run something much softer and deal with that predictable fork movement much more easily, the dive. Mm. The fact that it's diving unpredictably 
on some bump faces and not on others is what causes the problem and makes people end up running really, really firm front-end settings for steep tracks. Mm. Um, and, you know, obviously, maybe not steep enough head angle, not long enough front-end, all these things. But, um, mm. but yeah, the, we can't talk about... We can't talk about that level of um, anti-dive versus dive when the forks are so poor <laughs> that you've got so much stiction. Yeah, <clears throat> there's a lot more going on, yeah. certainly. Yeah, you can't, we haven't, we're, yeah, not ready to move on to anti-dive yet. Mm. God knows. <laughs> no, I've only ridden a couple of anti-dive forks on motorcycles and they're horrible. Um, it was a technology that was, again, you know, a theoretical benefit. In reality, it was a death trap. Um, and nobody uses it now. Um. Well, there you go. <laughs> we said we said before we started that we're gonna it's gonna be hard to to kind of shut us up, and uh, we so waffled. We did, yeah, we didn't waffle too much. I think that was quite <laughs> interesting. But I think I think we should uh, should wrap it up. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to say? No, no, that's that's cool. Looking, <laughs> yeah, looking forward to this imaginary next bike that we've been talking about. Yeah, yeah, looking well, forward to riding it. I don't, I don't do the designing. I just do the <laughs> critiquing. I just slag it off and don't have no idea what how to make a good bike. <laughs> yeah. I just know when I like a bike and when I yes, when I don't. You do. Yes, you do. Anyway, anyway, thanks very much, Chris, no and um, yeah, see you on the next podcast. Cheers, dude. That was the Bike Radar Meets Chris Porter podcast part two. Thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your podcast provider and share it with your friends if you did think it was interesting. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bye.